Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. An Erios production. Menopause is coming and the men have all left town. But I'm not giving up until I see that baby crown. 39 and single. Can someone help me out? He could be balding, bearded, shorter, tall, funny, smart, love basketball. Gay, straight, black, white, tiny eyes with an underbite. I just need everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spermcast. I'm so excited to get to our, vin- our interview. But first, I want to give a big thank you to my newest patron, Stephanie L. Oh my goodness, do I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. Listeners, right now, you too can become a patron and show your support for this show by going to patreon.com forward slash spermcast where you'll have access to all kinds of good stuff. Actually, I just edited the tiers this week so that the perks are more exciting and they make a little bit more sense. So go check those out. One of the perks I'm excited about is a discount for fertility consultations. That's right. If you subscribe at the $10 level or more, you can get half off your first fertility consultation with me and $10 off each consecutive session. And if you subscribe at the $25 level or more, you can get your first session for free and $25 off every single session after that. Quick disclaimer, if you're already getting a discount, this doesn't apply to you. I'm sorry. Also, want to hear the podcast without those annoying ads? Well, now you can, at least until Erios finds out. All you have to do is sign up on the Patreon at the $5 level or more, and voila, you can listen to the podcast on the Patreon app without ads. And now my update. I went in for an ultrasound on Tuesday to see Dr. Chung and get started on my transfer cycle and something really interesting happened. When Dr. Chung walked in and told me the schedule was all worked out and my transfer was tentatively scheduled for July 2nd, well, I was caught off guard. July 2nd. Oh my goodness. I know. Oh my gosh. Thursday. I don't know why nothing seemed real until just oh now. Oh my god, you're just That's, getting me chills. I'm getting chills. That's so weird. Yeah, it's exciting. Oh my gosh, I'm emotional. I know. What well, the hell is happening? It is. It's like the past few months have been oh. such a whirlwind. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm happy to see you. I'm happy to yeah. get started with this process. So. But yeah, let's see how it looks. Yeah, let's see how it looks. <laughs> Before I get chills. <laughs> it's like... Everything had been put on pause for so long and I'd subconsciously suppressed my deep desire and longing and then suddenly here I was and I could get back in the game and anyway it just it surprised me in a good way in a really good way. So the ultrasound looked good, no ovarian cysts and my blood work came back normal so I went over my next steps with the nurse and that was it. Now I'm on estrogen twice a day, baby aspirin once a day, and in a couple days I raise my estrogen to three times a day. And then the next big thing is my endometrial lining check on the 25th, and then, well, we'll see. I don't want to think too far ahead. It makes me nervous, but this is nice. It's nice that something is happening. 
Okay, so here's something super, super crazy. One of my new listeners who's been binging the whole series alerted me to something that's absolutely nuts. Okay, do you remember, let's see, my bonus episode a couple months ago with actor and filmmaker Ingrid Haas with the uh, short film Still Wild? Well, here's a moment from our conversation. And then I went to an audition directly after the doctor told me that there's no heartbeat. <sighs> I completely forgot what the commercial was for. It was for a woman giving birth in labor, labor and delivery at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I start crying in the waiting room. And then they're like, Ingrid, you're paired with John Smith. Can you guys like talk and get to know each other? And I'm sitting there <laughs> weeping. So I look at John Smith, and this is sort of a real thing that I put in the movie. I look at John, I have tears in my eyes, and I'm like, hey, I just was at the doctor and I was pregnant, and uh, there was no heartbeat. And, you know, it's just really sad and bubble. I just, like, blurted this all out to this tall, uh-huh. cis white male. And he <laughs> literally, I was looked at him, I was like, oh, God, why did I do this? He's going to be like, okay, crazy. But instead, he was like, well, um, last night... My neighbors, they're lesbians and they're good friends of mine. And they asked me to donate my sperm and they're ovulate. One of them was ovulating last night. And so I gave it to them. And then tonight I'm giving them some more. And I guess I have feelings about it too. So we're both going through something. Oh my God. I can't believe that was a real moment. That was a real moment. And I put that in the film. Oh my God. But I didn't put the whole audition. I was like, it's too crazy. I can't put the audition that I'm, you'd be like, okay, a bit on the nose there. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) But that is what happened. Now, here's a moment from episode one of season two recorded over a year and a half ago with my OG sperm donor, Zach. Ironically, I had a commercial audition today where I'm playing a young dad. Uh-huh. And uh, it's actually like in the delivery room, like uh-huh. that level of dad. And, you know, you go to these auditions for the listeners and you get paired up with your TV wife or whatever. It's just the woman who signed in closest to you. And so I get paired up with this woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she introduces herself and she's like, this is kind of funny because I literally just came from my OB's office where my husband and I were told that we're having a miscarriage. Oh, shit. And I mean, she has kind of like a tear in her eye as we're about to go in and pretend to have labor or whatever. And I was like, wow, I'm sorry to hear that. And I have an interesting story, (laughs) too. Yeah. And and what did she say? She's like, yeah, that's very strange. And then she kind of, you know, we talked about our situation just a little bit. Yeah. I mean. That's hard. Yeah. And brave of her to be vulnerable with me, a total stranger like Mm -hmm. that, too. Yeah. There's something... In the air. Yeah, there's something in the air. That's crazy. Okay, so then I texted Ingrid and I said this. Dude, I have a strange question. One of my listeners just reminded me that my original sperm donor, Zach, had the same exact story about the commercial audition and the woman who had just been told she's having a miscarriage. Was your miscarriage back in late 2018? Are you sure the guy you met was donating to a lesbian couple and not me? She wrote, OMG, ha ha ha. He said he was donating, and I guess I could have absolutely made up the part subconsciously that it was a lesbian couple. It was December 2018. Well, Zach made his first sperm donation to me in late November. I think it was November 26th. So Ingrid must have found out 
in late November. Anyway, so then I sent Ingrid a picture of Zach. She said, oh my God, that's him. And then she went and listened to Zach's episode and... Then she wrote back to me, Molly, I can't get over it. I just listened and that was 100% me. That moment was so pivotal to me and my healing because he, a total stranger who I assumed was going to not receive the information well, but I needed to share it anyway. He made me feel not alone in one of the saddest moments for me. Please tell him he's an angel. Well, I will tell Zach. I haven't reached out to him yet because I've been very busy, but also... I haven't heard from Zach since he quit me as a sperm donor, and I've been so, uh, I've been holding on to some anger about that. Or hurt. I don't know if it's anger. It's hurt. Anyway, I think this is a good reason for me to reach out and say hello and let go of that that hurt feeling. And one of the things that Ingrid said that uh, from this experience she had with Zach was that this moment made her realize how everybody is always going through something. So take what you want from that. I don't know what any of it means. If you're a spiritual person, please feel free to tell me what it all means. And now it's time for our interview. So last week I called myself out on the show for not having done more to get black voices on my show. And I asked you, my listeners, to send me some suggestions for guests. And one of you, one of you wonderful people, told me about Nefertiti Austin. She's a lovely woman, a historian, a professor, a feminist, a novelist, an author of the recent book, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. And most importantly, she is a single mother by choice to two adopted children. Children. A couple notes about this episode. There's some dog barking and leaf blowing, and you might think those are accidental, but nope, I put them in there on purpose for ambiance. So enjoy. Also, we were on Skype. A couple words drop out here and there, but you can figure it out. Okay, time for the interview. I was speaking with someone about this a few months ago, and she said, you know, I've been looking for parenting experts, for, for black parenting experts, and, you know, I really don't know where to look. And I was explaining to her, I don't think that we necessarily hold ourselves out to be parenting experts. Mm -hmm. And so I think the search has to I think you have to be a little more creative in your search. Mm -hmm. And often it seems that people have a doctorate, they're a psychologist or a psychiatrist or, or some type of therapist. And so naturally, they're going to show up under any parenting expert sort of, you know, list on a list or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so for us, I mean, I do have a master's degree, but it's so far from parenting. I mean, my degree is in African American studies, and I've got an emphasis in women's studies. And, you know, 25 years ago, who who knew I'd be writing a book actually using all of that information because, you know, you get a degree like that and it's like, well, what are you going to do with it other than, you know, maybe teach or maybe mm -hmm. write. And so I think the search for black mothers in particular who are writing about parenting, parenthood, infant mortality, race, things of that nature, I think the search has to be broader. And it's just as simple as that, you know, where are, how can I find, who has written books by black women about whatever the subject matter is. And I think that'll go a long way in sort of filling in acknowledged gaps, you know. And so thank you for being open and, you know, taking a look back to see, hmm, here's, here's something I can do. So thank you. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. I also felt like it was a terrible time to be reaching out to any black person because, fuck, I mean, it's just such yeah. an awful, awful 
time. Yeah. Well, I think for us, we are of two minds. So I can speak for myself and tell you on the one hand, hand I am tired. I mean, I am yeah. absolutely worn out for myself, but because I do have children, I've got a 13 year old black boy mm-hmm. and I've got a seven year old black girl and having conversations. We, we talk about race and their racial understanding and sort of lessons began pretty early, but my teen is really starting to see the world differently as Mm -hmm. he should because he's 13 and in five years he'll be off to college. And so managing his feelings about what's going on and his fears, his legitimate fears Mm -hmm. about how will I be approached and thought of and handled when I am out in the world minding my own business? So there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into that. Even when we're not talking about it, like it's it's beneath the surface. And as a parent, I, you know, I have to check in with him just mm-hmm. to see, you know, where he is, not to stir up any angst, but just to see where he is. And then, yes, lots of folks have reached out for information. So you know, it's a catch 22. You don't know what you don't know. And if I can answer some questions, then I'm certainly happy to do so. And I think that, you know, tired, but we will answer the questions because what we don't want is for this to be a moment. We want this to continue. And absolutely, as we roll into an election, you know, the summer plus an election is upon us. Yeah. And this time next, here, we don't want to be in the same boat with everyone like, Oh my God, what can I do? So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so appreciative that you're taking the time to talk to me about everything. So thank you so much. (laughs) Nefertiti has a beautiful story about how she became a mom. And so I asked her to start from the beginning. I was raised by my grandparents and my parents were part of the black power movement. And unfortunately they both had drug problems and, you know, one thing led to another and they were young and on fire about civil rights and about police brutality. You know, that was the sixties and the seventies and, but their drug addictions really derailed who they were and it, it impacted directly their ability to parent. And so as a result, my brother and I were back and forth for a number of years with our grandparents, my mom's parents. And eventually when I was around nine, we went to stay with them on a permanent basis. And so I had a relationship with my mother, had a relationship with my dad, even though he was in and out of jail just up until he died when I was 21. And so I grew up in a multi-generational household and my grandparents, you know, it was whatever they said, you know, that was the law. And so it changed the dynamic, the dynamics of our family because then my parents really became more like siblings. And I'm sure that unconsciously all of that laid the foundation for, you know, 20 years later, I would decide, you know what, I think that I'm going to pay it forward and I'm going to adopt. So I definitely wanted to be married and, you know, all of that, you know, married and have a house with a picket fence and some kids and dogs and all that good mm-hmm. stuff. And, when my friends were getting married in our mid twenties, I knew then I wasn't ready. I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> I, I, I can't do it. No, no thanks." And it would be another decade before I finally felt like, you know, I'm ready to be 
a mother and I really wanted to adopt and I wasn't necessarily seeing anybody at the time, which was fine because I had made up my mind. I really wanted to adopt. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want that to be derailed for me. And the other really big influence is my best friend. We're still best friends. She's an adoption social worker. She was adopted. Sorry, you don't have to edit my dogs out. It's okay. It's cute. (laughs) And, um, I have, you know, you go along, you meet people, and then I began meeting other people who were adopted, and I felt like, wow, they turned out well, you mm-hmm. know, so there's there's something to this. And A quick I question really- before you move on. Um, you also talk about in the book this sort of, I can't remember the phrase that you used. Was it black adoption or? Oh, yes, our, our black adoption, yes. <laughs> so that's shorthand really just for an informal adoption. So in in black communities, typically what we do is we look internally. And Mm -hmm. so if someone in the family, if there's a niece or nephew or cousin or someone in the neighborhood, someone in the church community, whatever that person's community looks like, if there is a child in need, that child will not be parentless. Mm -hmm. Someone is going to say, send that child over here. I will take care of him or her or them if they're multiple kids. And so we really are loath to include court system, social mm. services. I mean, we've got a long, very negative history with the judicial system. And we are very concerned about children being removed from us and, yeah. and never seeing them again. And so if mm. there's someone who can, then often they will step forward or they will answer the call. They'll say, sure, I will step in and I will help raise a child. So then you don't need a formal agreement for that. I mean, in order, of course, for decisions to be made for education, medical, that sort of thing, then you might have to take a step towards legal guardianship. So my grandparents were ultimately legal guardians. But beyond that, we didn't have to go any place outside of our family. Gotcha. And so that's something that we do. And then if there aren't any children, like in my family at the time, I had nieces and they were young, but they had their parents. So There weren't any kids, loose kids running around. (laughs) So I had to look in my backyard, a different backyard. Mm -hmm. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go the public adoption route. And I I wanted to adopt from the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services. Mm -hmm. And and so immediately was met with some pushback. Uh, I, I delayed sharing my decision with my family because I had an inkling that it wasn't going to go over well, and largely because it was like, there she goes again, doing something crazy. And the concern that many people had and still have is that these children and the foster care system are defective. There is something wrong with them. My brother, my aunt, and, and some of my friends were critical of my decision. And felt like, okay, that's that's a dumbass idea. And you're single and you're not married and you don't have money saved up. And it was all of these roadblocks that they threw up, all of these things they felt that I should be deeply concerned about. And I guess they thought that they were going to scare me into reconsidering what I felt was a deeply personal decision. Mm-hmm. And naturally, of course, when my son showed up, you know, all that stuff went out the window, which is typically what happens. Right, 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 right. Then Nefertiti went and put the dogs in a different room on the other side of the house. Should have known the gardener's here and they hate him. Oh. <laughs> I th- at first so, I was like, oh, it's okay. It won't bother anybody. But I'm like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> 
it's it's two of them. So my son went to get them. So. Very sweet. No. Okay, so we were at your decision to adopt. When I moved to Beverly Hills, I remember that distinctly. It was June. And by September, I just remember like, it's time. And you were how old at this point? I think 36, maybe. Mm-hmm. And you'd already right. written books. I had written two uh, fiction novels a decade before. Wow. And so my background is fiction. And I was still writing, but still trying to figure it out. I was an adjunct history professor and working at a nonprofit, a shelter for uh, victims of domestic violence and working in the entertainment. I mean, you just pick something. I was just, just sort of doing it and really sort of feeding my, my passions. I love to travel. I love to read. I yeah. love to go get a massage. <laughs> would kill for one right about now. Me too. And really just enjoying my life. But I felt something is missing. And when I started noticing strollers, I, I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> So now I had purchased bottles and bibs and all those things for my nieces when they were little. So it wasn't like I didn't know what those things were. But they it, they took on a meaning for me. Mm. And to see myself in the role as primary caregiver, I began to see myself in the role as mother. And that that was a good feeling. And so I, I acted on it because it was really a need that I had. So I think people become parents. I mean, sometimes it's an oops situation, but... Often we have a need and I had a need to care for someone other than myself. Yeah. And my two dogs, my my other two dogs. (laughs) We know your dog. (laughs) In your book, you said that your friend said, oh, in California, you have to uh, do foster to adopt first. Is that still true? Yes. So in California, it, it didn't used to be the case. There was tiered sort of training and then... An adjustment was made where anyone who was seeking to even be a foster parent, you had to be trained at the adoption level. And so now the the new shift is more in favor of kinship families, kinship adoptions, relative adoptions. And so they have restructured it. It's still parenting classes, but the structure is a little bit different because what was happening was that the standards were were rigid. You have to be able to pass a state background check, the national background check. Um, you needed a letter of rec, and some of the relatives of children who were already in the system were unable to pass a background tech check. And even if it were something relatively minor, it would be enough to. I might have to go sit in my car. <laughs> it would be enough enough to take them out of the running to even be able to take in their cousin or niece or nephew, something like that. And so um, it's tweaked from, from time to time just to really maximize supporting the children in foster care and being able to find permanency for them. The background check thing. I have a question about that. So I, and I'm just wondering, I've always thought at protests, I go to protests a lot and I've always thought, well, I don't care if I get arrested. I wonder, Uh I've never been arrested, but I'm wondering, like, if I got arrested at a protest, would I be able to adopt? Sure, because that's, well, certainly in this season of uh, protesting, no one's being charged. They're holding people and releasing them, so it definitely wouldn't work against you. So it would have to be something (laughs) relatively major or maybe something fraud-related. I mean, there are things that will take people 
out of the running, but protesting, that wouldn't be one of them. Okay. (laughs) Cool. Okay. So let's see, how did it, okay. So starting the adoption process for you. Okay. So I don't know that this is still the case, but I went to an orientation and then I signed up for PS map training, which was six weeks of parenting classes. And so, you know, along the way, a prospective parents have the opportunity to opt out. They could say, you know what, I'm, as I learn more about the process, as I learn more about myself and my, my need and why I want to do this, hmm, I really don't want to do this. I thought I did, but I really don't want to. So there's so many opportunities along the way to just be like, ah, this looked good from afar. This was cute on television, but mm-hmm. the reality is this isn't going to fit for me. So for those of us who stuck with the program, at the end of the process, we were given a form and you essentially get to say what it is you confidently feel that you can handle. And so, and you can put your preferences down. So to me, it was very important that any child I took responsibility for would be at least half African-American. I really wanted a little boy. I knew black boys languished in the system and I didn't want to add to that. Mm -hmm. And I was aware that often the kids are in the system because of neglect. That's like the biggest reason. And some of the biological parents do present with drug issues, that sort of thing. So then it becomes the degree. So, you know, which drugs are deal breakers? So a mother who had been an alcoholic, that was a deal breaker for me Mm -hmm. because I didn't feel equipped that I could work with a child who maybe had fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm -hmm. But there are other foster parents who are like, just send me what you have. You know, I'm, I'm up for it and I'm willing to take the additional classes to get training on how to support these particular children. Some folks were like, if the child's in a wheelchair, you know, no problem. I'll take care of it. Because I was a brand spanking new parent, I really was not up for those things. I I didn't feel that I could. I just said, oh, I really would love to have a little boy. And I'd like for for him to be African-American and um, zero to six months old. If he's older than that, you know, that's okay. You know, I, I was pretty flexible. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the fact that you're single, you got to be an angel to sort of take on that responsibility. I mean, the the people, the parents that adopt children of special needs or I don't know, it's just, it's scary. It's scary. And I don't know if I would be able to do that. I think they have a gift. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I think that they, it takes a special person, definitely people who have a gift because essentially you are giving your life over you to caring for a child who may never be able to care for themselves. I mean, that's certainly a very special person. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And then you also just mentioned how black boys seem to get lost in the system. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. And there's definitely a stigma against black males in this country. I mean, I don't have to say George Floyd or Ahmaud Aubrey or Christian Cooper. And the list, of course, is ridiculously endless. Mm-hmm. And this fear of black males and who they grow up to become and these um, very negative stereotypes around their motivations for for who they are and not really even being seen as full-fledged members of society. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly, you know, any parent of little kids knows that 
you don't really know what you're going to get, regardless of if it's a boy or a girl. I mean, my daughter is two kids. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, if I had gotten her first, I don't know that I would have had a second child, but, you know, that's okay. I love her. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, just so many negative feelings and thoughts around, oh, these boys are going to grow up and they'll be gang members and they'll be causing problems in schools. And I just, I'm like, why do people think that? And why is that a prevailing myth around black boys? And what are the systems in place that create situations for some children to act out? Mm -hmm. And you know, we can take a look at structural racism in this country lack of employment and housing and homelessness, et cetera, et cetera, as true causes. It's not this innocent child who enters the world determined to grow up to be a menace to society. I mean, you know, no one does that. Yeah. But there's these things, these forces that have been in play for so long yeah. that it, it, it sort of bears out. But I really wanted to do something about that. So that was my I mean, I've always been community service minded, so yeah. sort of my community service. Do you think or do you have an opinion about white people adopting black children? I think it's fine. I, my opinion is that let's get these children in foster care into permanent home. Mm -hmm. So that's my opinion about that. Now, if a person chooses or a couple chooses to adopt transracially, it's super important that they do their homework. So what's disturbing are the white people who feel that love is enough because it is not. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't understand how to use their white privilege to advocate on behalf of their children, that is a problem. Because when your child is out of your eyesight, like at school or on his or her bicycle out in the world, no one will be able to look at them and say, oh, you've got white parents at home, so I'm going to leave you alone. It, it doesn't work. So it's, it is crucial for their emotional safety and their physical safety that they be aware of race mm -hmm. and history, how they can protect themselves. And as parents, white parents, what they can do in the situations in which they do have control, like a school setting, you know, the doctor's office, stuff like that. And then other things, self-image is important. Basic things like lotion, because our skin is darker. And when there's no lotion, we are ashy and it shows. <laughs> and hair care, even yeah. if you don't know how to comb hair, that's something I've learned to do. I have learned to comb hair. YouTube videos are different. Yeah. And I also think that white parents who adopt black children have to make a concerted effort to have black friends. There needs to be other black adults in their child's life so that they can look to, oh, well, when I grow up, these are some of the things I may encounter. These are some of the things that or they have information that white parents just don't have. And it's not a knock on white parents. It's just a fact. Yeah, of course. I, I think there's um, a part of me that like I would love to adopt a, a black child. Uh, and there's part of me that's like, is there a negative connotation to like this idea that I could be saving a black child? You know what I mean? There's a weird like, right. Then right. I'm like, Oh, I'm a bad person for wanting to <laughs> think that, right. you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely tricky. And people do say, you know, the whole white savior thing. Mm -hmm. But 
it's less of a, a savior complex. I mean, as an adoptive parent, people will say, oh, you saved that child's life or, oh, you have done so much for them. And there's all of this praise that's given to the adoptive parent. And it's like, oh, he's so lucky to have you or, or she's so lucky to have you, which I don't like that Mm-mm. because I didn't do the kids a favor. They chose me. And so I feel like I am the lucky one. And I, I do bristle at that whole savior thing. And for, for us, white savior becomes an issue when it seems like white people had all the answers and black people couldn't do anything without white people. So that's how it feels. And so like when you see a movie, for instance, like the, the blind side mm. and uh, <laughs> I think his name was, was Michael and the, um, the family takes him in. That's wonderful that they could support that child. It gets to be sort of dicey when it's like, okay, these people, because they were white, were the best thing that ever happened to that child, as opposed to these human beings were Mm -hmm. the best people. So when race, I think, becomes like the driving force in this child's success, like that stuff, that's not cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't studied this stuff, you know, and right. um, the term white savior had crossed my mind before I must have, you know, heard it or something. But sure. you just sort of um, thank you for labeling that question that I had in my head. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't I hate that idea. Yeah. I just want to any I want to help anybody, any child that sure. needs a parent, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, it just requires work. I mean, you know, it requires work and it requires effort and research and really expanding your space to make sure that whatever race that child is, you learn about culture. If you have a Latinx girl when she turns 15, like you should be saving your money so that she can have a quinceanera because that's important to her culture. And so it can be everything. And again, it's not to make the child feel separate from you, but it is really acknowledging you come from very rich traditions. You have your own culture, your own identity. I'm learning about it. So this is something we can grow and learn together. Yeah. And I believe that when those children become grown, you will have less backlash of transracially adopted adults, adoptees, who say, oh my God, I was the only black person in this school. We lived in this small town and it was idyllic for everybody except me. I kept getting expelled from school and my parents, you know, were lovely and sweet people, but they couldn't advocate for me in the way that I needed it. So that's the kind of thing. You can't move them out to nowhere. They need to be around diverse situations and diverse people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, back to your story. Sure. Just starting off, I guess, with your first waiting for your first phone call for okay, a, so a placement. For my placement. So I, I finished the, the course is six weeks and I figured, oh, it's going to be months before I get a call because that's also something you're told during the training. They really manage expectations. Don't think, you know, you're finished on Friday and on Monday we're going to call you and say we have a match. So hmm. I was shocked that I got a call six weeks later. <laughs> and it was for a little boy. He was nine months old, biracial. And what this particular child had some developmental delays. And so he wasn't able to sit up on his own at nine months and he couldn't hold his bottle on his own. And he had some other delays. And 
I was very honest with the social worker and I loved my worker because she said, really think about it. You want to make the best decision for the child. You know, it's not about you. Mm -hmm. It's about this child. And think about, is this something you can handle? And I had to pass. I said, no, I didn't feel that I was ready. I really hadn't had any exposure to children who had any types of delays like that. So I wasn't sure what to do or how I would handle that. So I said no. Mm-hmm. And then I think another month or two passed and I got another call. It would be two months passed. I got another call. This little boy was three months old, African-American. And the caveat this time was his mom was a teenager. So she was 16 mm-hmm. and the father was 29. Okay, so that's already a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And she was supposed to be placing the baby in foster care and they were not going to keep her baby. It was really just to give her an opportunity to get some parenting classes, hopefully finish high school, that sort of thing. And typically when a teenager has had a child, the rule is the social workers really look for family members, Mm -hmm. Um, a mom, grandma, grandpa someone who can keep that baby in the family because, you know, 16 is very young and, you know, naturally you're very immature and a decision you make at 16, you feel differently at 20. Yeah. And so, you know, really just not to ruin this girl's life. No one wanted to, <laughs> you know, keep her baby, but the child needed to go to come into foster care. So I get a call and I'm like, ooh, three months. That's a little young because mm-hmm. I know when they're really tiny, their skin is scaling and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. But, okay, I can do it. I can do it. So same thing. My worker was was managing expectations. And my best friend was like, okay, you won't get to keep this child. So you, if you say yes, you say yes knowing that someone is going to come forward for that baby. And you're going to have to be prepared to relinquish, to give the child back. And I heard her and I heard my worker and I said, yes. And I spent all day long waiting for the call to go and get the baby. And then the call came and the mother and the father upscounded (laughs) with the child. And I felt bad. Uh, They never showed up like they were supposed to. And then I felt bad, which was crazy because I had been warned on the front end that even if I got the child, I wasn't going to be able to keep them. Yeah. I can't believe you even went that far to say that you, I mean, I can't imagine the idea of the baby, the baby getting taken away. Uh, This is the hard part about foster to adopt for me. Yes, exactly. (sighs) And I intellectually, I understood that, but emotionally, so that taught me a very good lesson. And the lesson that I got was that I was not going to be, I mean, I'd have to give the child back because that's the rule. I mean, you know, but that was, that would be rough. And so in that, I'm like, wow, the people who love on these kids and prepare them to have a permanent home. Again, special classification of people, hands down. Because if you come live with me, you, you suck. You got to stay. I can't let you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to hold on. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. And then finally, the week of my birthday, I get a call and this one is six months old. So I'm checking boxes in my mind. I'm like, okay, right age, mm-hmm. African-American. Okay, right race. And he's smart. He's crawling. He's this. He's that. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Can I meet him? Can I meet him? Can I meet him? And I learned about him and I was able to meet him. And I definitely knew that, okay, this is 
this is my son. He is my son. And it was two weeks later that he came to live with me. And that's been 13 years now. (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 13 years in August, yeah. So, how, what happened during those two weeks? Who was he staying with? He was still in the foster home that he had been in and it was just a a paperwork issue. That's just, so I got to, I got to meet him Mm. and then I was able to see him a second time. So I was able to have two visits with him. And after that, it was, I said, yes. And it was just a matter of whatever paperwork happens on their end, whatever steps they have to take on their end. And so during that two weeks, I was really excited. And I didn't know exactly which day he was going to come. And my friends and I used to go to Palm Springs every year for my birthday. And I canceled the trip that year because I was like, well, he's going to come. I I just, I don't know when, but I know he's coming (laughs) soon. And I didn't want to be two hours out the city and have to nervously, you know, drive back to LA to be ready to receive him. And he came later that week. It was on a Thursday. He, oh he came that week. So I was nervous and excited. And now during the uh, training classes, we had to have things. So I, I already had a crib. I already had some baby stuff. And so in the week leading up to him coming, I'm sure I probably got some more, you know, some baby food or just, just prepared for him to come. That two weeks, it reminds me of like when you're trying to get pregnant, there's the two week wait. <laughs> where you don't know if you're pregnant or not. Oh, right. And <laughs> right. it seems like right. the whole thing, all of it, adoption and just trying to get a baby in general is just yes. so much waiting and not knowing. I'm on the edge of my seat. All my listeners are on the edge of their mm-hmm. seats waiting for me to get pregnant mm-hmm. or waiting for me to find my baby mm-hmm. wherever they are. And I just... I am ready to not be waiting anymore. And it seems like what the waiting that you had to go through, you know, I think you said six months to two years it might be before you get a child placed with you um, or five right. years. What did you and say? So it happens sooner. Oh. Absolutely. It could be any time. It could be months. It could be years. I mean, you know, I, my whole experience, that part of it, it went super fast. Mm. I mean, and I've certainly met other people who went through the same exact process I did. And it was, you know, a year, two years before they received a placement. Mm. So you can't, you can't call it. There's no way to know. Mm how long it's going to be. And sometimes people had placements and they were disrupted for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, A relative came forward or it wasn't a good fit or, you know, anything can happen during that time. And it's funny because when you're a kid, you think, oh yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to be a mom and whatever that looks like for you, I'm going to get married or, you know, whatever. But you think it's easy. You don't know until you become 
And even when you become an adult, I don't think you really know until it's you when you are actually mm-hmm. actively trying, whether it's naturally, it's in vitro, it's a surrogate, it's adoption. When it's you going through it, then you're like, oh, my God, (laughs) no one told me this was going to be such drama. Yeah. I mean, maybe people mention it, but it does not register. Oh, no, it doesn't. I'm so over it. But I want to get back to you. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So he he arrives at your house. You're a new mom all of a sudden in one day. Instant mom. (laughs) Waiting waiting all of this time and suddenly you're a mother. I started September 06 and by August 07, I was somebody's mother. (laughs) Crazy. Crazy. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's it like that first night? Wonderful. The first night was hard and scary and... I was told beforehand, oh, sure, he self-soothes. You don't have to worry about that. He sleeps through the night. So I'm thinking, oh, this is great. He's He came late. It was like 9.30 at night. <laughs> so I figured, oh, he'll go right to bed. No problem. He did not go to sleep. He screamed and he screamed. And I thought, oh, my God, I am failing at this. I just got started yeah. and I'm the worst mother ever. <laughs> and so I called uh, my best friend and she was like, you know, duh, he, you're new to him. It's a new environment. It, it, it's a new everything. He's tired. Just just hold him. He'll, he'll go to sleep. And eventually we did fall asleep. But the first six weeks, he would just stare at me. His eyes were this, these big, gigantic saucers. Uh-huh. And it was funny. I got him Thursday, and so there's two schools of thoughts. It is one, just you and the baby, take time to really kind of bond. And then other people feel like, well, you know, people are are excited, and they want to meet the baby. And so it's hard to hold people off. And so we were flooded with guests (laughs) and that whole first weekend. And But he, he knew that I was his mother because I do remember him looking at me sort of like, okay, who are all these Aww. people? Oh, <laughs> I love it. Coming in here? Yeah. And so it was, it was good. It was just a knowing. It was definitely a knowing that he is my son and I am his mother. Yeah. And it made me feel then and now, like I've always had them. And I forget that they are adopted. I mean, I don't have stretch marks or anything to look mm-hmm. in the mirror and be like, oh, you did this to me, you know, nothing like that. <laughs> but my kids are so a part of my everything that I forget that they are adopted. Yeah, yeah. And the skepticism mm-hmm. that your family had went right out the window as soon as baby was there, right? Well, then the next fear was I'd be able to keep him. That was the ah, next fear. Sure. So then it was, um, oh, you know, well, you're not going to be able to. And it was never anything to my face. That was the other thing because typical family, you know, Mm -hmm. it goes through the family (laughs) grapevine. But then years later, the main instigator, she did apologize to me. And she said, I was afraid for you because I really just didn't understand. And so I appreciate that she gained insight and was able to that those were her issues, not mine. But you're, this one seemed like uh, from the beginning, you felt like you would be able to keep this baby because mom had had, what, six other kids before? He was legally freed, which meant that there was no risk of him returning to biological mother or father or family members. Mm-hmm. So I was in the clear mm-hmm. for for that. Now, if it had been a situation where 
again, like with the child before where there would be active measures taken to return this child to their family, then yes, absolutely. I would have been open to perhaps not being able to keep him, but that was never an issue for us. So thankfully I didn't have those concerns. And that's part of the reason that the process extends out for people because there is a lot of back and forth. There is a lot of, okay, we're really going to work with the parents and see if we can get them up to speed so that the family can, can remain intact. Yeah. So, okay, now you, you lead the way. Where, where do we go next? Okay, so I've got my little boy, and I am deliriously happy and tired. I was so exhausted. I had no idea that parenting was so physically taxing, mm-hmm. and I would fall asleep on the couch like at 7.30. Mm. And that was a first because I was a night owl. So all of a sudden at 7.30, I'm done. Just could not move a muscle. (sighs) And I had a really wonderful, found a really wonderful in-home daycare for him because of course I still had to work. Mm -hmm. And so he went to daycare and I went uh, to work. I did stay home with him for a couple of weeks and I would take him to work with me Mm. in the carrier. And so he was a nice, big, healthy 18 pounds at uh, eight months old. So I had all kind of wrist issues, had to go to OT. (laughs) And I had all of those baby Bjorn things. I tried every iteration of those things, put them on my chest, I put them on my back, I put them on my hip, put them on my, I couldn't do it. (laughs) He he was too heavy for me. (laughs) So I was like, you're going to be on the stroller or I will just have to carry you. Yeah. So it was great. It, we, we just did everything. I mean, we traveled all over the place and it was really sort of he and I against the world. And my friends were very supportive and naturally my family came around. My big mistakes were I didn't ask for help. So I didn't say, Hey, can you watch him so I can take a nap? Like I didn't do stuff like that. Or can you watch him? I go to the grocery store Mm -hmm. or to do the laundry and just have some time to myself. So we definitely were joined at the hip. Is that because you had made this choice to become a single mom and you didn't feel like uh, you could ask other people for help? Exactly. That was exactly the reason I felt like I made this decision. I'm 100% responsible for Mm -hmm. my decision and for him. And if I ask for help, that's a sign of weakness. It's it's a sign of, ooh, they were right. I can't handle being a mother by myself. So all ego. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I worry about that for myself because I'm like, I'm going into this with, you know, the full intention and how can I ask other people for help if I'm doing this sort of like elective thing? You know, yes. yes. Oh. Well, ask for help. Yeah, <laughs> to ask for help. Yeah, that's what they say. And you should. Yeah. Yes, and you're gonna need it. So yeah, <laughs> be sure to ask. Yeah, for help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, my son had a godfather. Uh, early on, a really good friend of mine stepped up to be his godfather. So we had a lot. We really had a lot of support, mm-hmm. and I know that that's not always the case for people. Even for biological children, you know, sometimes people really are on their own. So we had community and as he got older and certainly once he started elementary school and sports, then his his male community came about and great guys, great men who are still in his life. Mm -hmm. And it's been a very positive 
experience for us. Yeah, yeah. And we talk about adoption. I mean, I told him early on that he was adopted and I really wanted, I didn't want any drama in that regard. I didn't want anyone saying, oh, you, you know, you're not her son. I, I really wanted him to know that your skin is brown, you are adopted and, you know, go outside and play. It, it's it just to normalize that for mm-hmm. him. This is how this is our family configuration and we are proud of, of, of who we are and, and you're good. You, in your book, I mean, it's a big part of your book, the fact that um, there's not a lot of literature about people that look like you and have a baby that looks yeah. like your son. We are up against the myth that black people don't adopt. So that's probably the biggest uh, barrier. And then the other barrier really is just that in publishing, mother really is equated with white. And because motherhood in in our country equals white women, and it's really white women of a certain class. I mean, there's certainly diversity within all motherhood, but the way it's presented in the media, whether it's a movie or a television show, or you're looking at the covers of a magazine, the impression that everybody gets is there is one motherhood and then everybody else. And so as a result, when I started writing about motherhood and parenting and adoption early on I was met with a lot of this is a interesting it's important but it's it's a marginalized experience like white women are not going to read about this mm-hmm. like you're you're you're, you're not going to have an audience for this and I didn't think I was writing a book about this I just thought I was sort of ranting about racism in adoption and parenting and over time realized, oh, this is slowly morphing into a book and sending my book proposal out to people and being rejected. I mean, that's the nature of the business as a writer. You just get rejected just Mm. on general principle. And that's fine. But the notes I would get from from agents would be, I can't sell this. I can't sell your story because it's too marginal. And so if you are told that your experience is marginal, then it would be very difficult to find stories, movies, television programs, or what have you that reflect your experience. And yet I live a very full life. It's hardly marginal. Yeah. So how did you navigate your adoption experience moving forward with your son without the guidance from books that you were seeking? Friends. Definitely. My friends, I was raised by, you know, my grandmother. So she's obviously a lot older. And so I would talk to her about some things, but I really turned to my friends and they were really very supportive and very open to questions. And I could call them at any hour and say, I'm drowning. I don't know what to do. Um, you know, this is a situation that happened at school, or this is a situation that happened when we were out in the world, or I noticed that he's doing such and such. Is this normal? Mm-hmm. I certainly continue to, you know, read parenting information and what women of color do. We just, we cherry pick the things that are relevant to us because there's tons of, of universal things that happen within parenting. We all have to figure out how to potty train a child. That has nothing to do with race. Right. You know, many of us have children who are picky eaters. That's not race specific. So there are lots of things that are very universal about being a mother. And so I took those things that were relevant and applied them. Right. Certainly 
you know, where they fit. But if it was cultural issues, then I would, you know, hit Google up or the library just to find things written by black mothers to say, oh, yeah, this happened before and that's not a big deal or this is how I handled it. That sort of thing. Yeah. So, but it would have been nice for someone like myself. I'm a reader and most women of a certain age who are seeking pregnancy, we turn to books. Right. You know, yeah. so it would have been nice to have had a book to say, oh, you're going to encounter these things possibly. Yeah. And you're okay. Do you feel like that's changed at all since you were needing these books? Do you think, do you feel like there are more books out there for, for black single mothers of a black child or adopted child? Uh, not specific to adoption, mm. but in the last, uh, let's see, this is 2020. So maybe the last like four or five years, mm. there have been more books that have been published by black mothers on the subject of motherhood. Okay and mothering, and race, and politics, and economics, that sort of thing. Uh, Imani Perry's book came out before mine. It's called Breathe, and she's a single parent. And so so it's not adoption necessarily, but she's, a, she's divorced. Mm. And so there are a few other books that are out that are talking about racial hierarchies within motherhood. But I think that my book is the only one that directly discusses adoption. Mm -hmm. Disha Filia has a book out that came out some years ago. Her eldest child is adopted mm. and she and her husband divorced. So she writes about co-parenting. Mm. Okay. Okay. It's it's more of co-parenting, but she is an adoptive parent as well. Yeah. I just noticed the time and I keep taking you off the subject the subject because I keep <laughs> having okay. questions, but I don't want to take all your whole day. You're a mom. You have kids. Okay. So so I did not want to just have one child. I didn't want my, my son to be an only child. And I had a plan. My plan was I would adopt a child and then I'd get married and have a child. And, I, you know, same thing. I was really so steeped in motherhood that I wasn't dating anybody. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And when my son entered kindergarten, he began asking for a baby. Aww. And uh -huh, he wanted a baby. And at first I was like, no, we're good. <laughs> we, you know, I'm a, I got, got this. I got you, you know, one to one, we're winning. And <laughs> he kept asking, kept asking. And so then I, I thought, okay, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I thought, okay, I will get another boy because I felt confident, like boy, mom, like I can do this. Mm -hmm. And so I started the process again. And then I, I speak at classes for prospective parents and I share my story. Mm. And so my very first worker and I, we had a sidebar conversation after one particular time. And she said, well, they're siblings, they're younger siblings, because my kids come from a very large family. And would I be interested in the boys meeting? And so I said, well, okay, let me think about your this. And so then your son's biological sibling. Yes. Mom had more. Yes. Bio so mom? my son is number well, my son's number seven. Right. He's he's baby number seven, right? So then there was another one after after him. Oh my goodness. But he was not with the biological mother. He had been adopted and the workers, you know, spoke very highly of this adoptive mother and I really trusted her judgment. So I said, sure, you know, that would be if she's okay with that, we'd love to meet them. Okay. And that would give my son a chance to have a biological connection because he was odd man out. He was number seven and the other kids, the six above him were in communication with each other, but 
not us. So we were invited to a party and we meet the brother. We learn there's another sister. Oh my goodness. And then we learn that there's a baby. Good gracious. Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking and I'm like, well, who's this? And they're like, that's the baby. And I'm like, who's baby? And they're like, the baby. I, she's six months old. And I'm like, okay. And I don't hold other people's kids, but I was like, may I hold her? Oh my God. <sighs> So that, that was the beginning of the end because somewhere in holding her, I realized that, oh, this is my child right here. <laughs> so oh my goodness. I disclosed that I was in the process of adopting again and that I was going to adopt a little boy and just out of curiosity, what's going to happen with this baby? So they were in the process of adopting the sister. And when that finished, they were almost done. When that finished, they were going to adopt the baby. So I said, oh, okay, great. You know, and if it's okay, we will come around more, you know, so we can be part of the kids can have each other. So we go to another birthday party a couple months later. And same thing. I hold the baby, hold the baby. And I one more time. So what's going to happen with her? And we're going to adopt her. Okay. Cause I'm still going through my process. I'm not here to steal your child, you know? Right. And that was July. And in a month I got a call asking if I would take both girls mm-hmm. because the placement didn't work out. So the brother who was already adopted would stay but the other foster kids would be removed. And would I take the girls? And I said, no. And I said, no, because I lived in this very small two bedroom apartment in Beverly Hills. So we physically had no space. I'm like, I cannot afford three children by myself. And what an unbelievably hard decision. Yes. And I was like, we will visit them wherever they are. We will maintain ties, but I cannot take on that that responsibility. And I thought that was the end of it. And so we did go visit them at their new foster home. Well, not at the home, but at at a location. And they asked again. And I said, I can take a the baby. And that was who I had bonded with was yeah. the baby. Yeah. But the court, children's court was like, the judge said, no, they won't split the girls up, which was fair. And I was like, don't split the girls, like let them be together. I get that. And for six weeks, we were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So what worked in our favor was that our social worker was able to make the case that the one sister was very close with her godmother and and the godmother was best friends with the brother's adoptive mother. And then they went to church together. So they would see each other all the time. They would have a connection and that my son was alone. And so if we had the baby, then he would have his biological connection Mm -hmm. as well. And I had promised, and I kept that promise that we would keep the kids together, like they would know each other. And it was just really divine intervention that the judge who had said no, 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 said yes. So the the older girl, she was placed with somebody that was somehow close. She was placed with her brother. No, 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 not her brother, her godmother. And her godmother is best friends with the brother's mother. Got it. Amazing. Yeah. So it worked out for everyone except the brother they had been living with. So it was a very Mm -hmm. bittersweet 
experience. And even thinking about it, it makes me so sad for him because he went from having his sisters with him every single day. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, five to it just being him. So that was really hard for him. And it took him a very long time to really understand what happened. And I think that that's an experience that will stay with him forever. So it was our gain, but it was his loss. And so I really, I don't take that for granted. And I, you know, we make a point to stay in touch with them. So anyway, it it, it worked out for us. So my brother got his baby. Oh, and not only did he ask for a baby, he was asking for a little sister, which I thought was so funny because I never wanted a little girl. Oh my goodness. So not only did he get a baby, he got a baby sister. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, how did you do that? He, like, totally manifested his sister. <laughs> and she has been an absolute blessing uh, the whole way. She is a, the feistiest thing. And she is all glitter and, you know, fuchsia wigs oh and goodness. nail polish. She's so funny. <laughs> and she has really the addition to our family that we need that we didn't know we needed her, but we needed her. So, so I would like to share that that's been a wonderful, pleasant surprise. I love it so much. And she's seven now and he's 13. Yes. And is he still glad he has a little sister or is he pissed? (laughs) Well, you know, you know, some days. So when he's really mad at her, I remind him, I'm like, you did this. You asked for her, you made this happen. So you need to go in there and hug and tell her you love her. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yeah. I love so that it's, so it's much. been great. So where do I go from here? I definitely can't handle any more children. So the the that's closed. The store is closed. No more children. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, just preparing my 13-year-old. He'll be applying for high school this fall, which is so crazy. And so just really hanging on for as long as as he'll let me cuz soon he'll be out the door and Certainly staying on top of my seven-year-old who's seven going on 35, you know, just have to help her to man down a little bit, like slow down a little bit. And I will continue to write about motherhood. And I'd like to dive back into fiction. It's been a while. I never thought I'd be writing nonfiction. So I've I've, I've veered into another lane and sort of working my way back into fiction and maybe even writing some things for television. So that would be cool. Oh, yes. Awesome. You said that when you were sort of before you made the book, you didn't know you were writing this book. What were you writing? Was it like a blog or essays? What were you doing? Is there a place where people can read these writings of yours? Sure. My website, which is Mm nefertitiaustin.com. You'll find all of my almost all of my publications. I don't know if that blog is still around, but I didn't feel comfortable sharing stuff about myself. So I basically was looking for information about adoption that I posted to my blog at the time. And so I thought I was writing a collection of essays that's around different aspects of motherhood. Like, so I adopted my child, my children, and I changed their names. So, which is, not something you're necessarily supposed to do when you adopt because their name is tied to their identity. So making that decision to do that. And we don't go to church, but having elders in my family asking, in my mentor asking, so when are you going to go to church? And 
like, oh, okay, but I don't go to church, so I'm not going to start going to church. So I thought that that's what I was doing. And when my agent sold my book and I first started speaking with the editor, the first draft was very academic. And so she said, this is wonderful, but we really need your story. So it was certainly a shift and having to be so personal and having to reveal yeah. not only things that happened in my life, but how I felt about them. Because if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm always going to tell you I'm fine. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. So I might throw in I'm tired, but I'm not going to sit and spill my guts. That's not that's not my way. Yeah. That's my way. That's what I do. <laughs> Well, that's good. You get it off of you. I'm holding mine in. So, you know, that's good. I'm learning to be more forthcoming. Yeah. I'm learning to be less. (laughs) I'm not. I'll never learn. (laughs) Um, That's interesting what you said about, um, or it was interesting to me listening to the book earlier about the expectation that you're not supposed to change their names. But for you, you said uh, that changing the name seemed like a new beginning. Right. So I felt that our new life meant that we were going to be new together. We were going to grow in this together. Mm -hmm. So I made the change. I changed his name and I changed her name a little bit really to reflect our family. But I I told the kids, like, they know what their birth names are. Mm -hmm. And every now and then, like, how you order food and you have to give a name. So every now and then my son will give his biological name or I'll hear my daughter talking to her friends and say, well, my real name is, Uh and she'll, you know, which is fine. And I never correct them. I never stop them. I never tell them, don't do that. Don't say that, you know, or what have you. But, but for me, I felt that these were names that represented our family and, and, and who we were going to be in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy for the three of you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It's It's been wonderful. Wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. And, you know, this was certainly my path. It was a good fit for me. And it's not for everybody. And that's the thing about adoption. <sighs> People just have to be very honest. Parenting, period. They have to be very honest. But, you know, if your case, like you said, you're electing parenthood. I elected parenthood yeah. because I, I sought out adoption. And you just have to be honest about what you want and stick to your dreams. If that's your dream, I think people should go for it and you'll figure it out. Yeah. You will definitely figure it out. Yeah. And you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm so tired from all of the uh, all of the work that I've already put into it. The, the idea of joining the foster to adopt scenario mm-hmm. is so scary to mm-hmm. me. That after mm-hmm. uh, putting in so much effort to get a baby and then to actually have an actual baby in your hands and then not be able to keep that baby, that terrifies me yeah. a lot. And then I'm also wondering, am I allowed to continue to do fertility treatments while trying to be trying to enter the foster to adopt situation or private adoption? And I don't, I think the answer is no. Right. I think you have to be done with it. You know, I, I would just say, don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's enough, there are lots of resources and there's so many kids who are legally freed that yeah. you would be less likely to have a situation of not being able to keep a child, but you have to go into it. And, and that's usually for kids who are a little bit older. So if you're wanting a baby, like yeah. from zero, 
zero on up, that's then you really have to just be like, okay, I'm going to do this yeah. knowing that I may or may not being able to. But if you're open to children who are older, by older, I mean like two. Right. That's considered old. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. System. Yeah. So you would be able to have less of a chance of interruption. Yeah. So. If people want to follow you on Instagram, where do they go? I am Nefertiti Austin at, on Instagram. Okay. Twitter is Nefertiti Austin. Mm-hmm. Facebook, Nefertiti Austin. <laughs> Great. I am easy to find. I have a website, www. You guessed it. Nefertiti, Nefertiti Austin. Austin. <laughs> um, yes, but the book yes. is called Motherhood So White. People can get that anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Amazon, your local independent bookstore. Or like I did, I listened to it on Audible. Well, mm-hmm. well. Thank you. I want to say thank you for, for having me. Yeah, I'm getting blown up in there. You got to go. You know. <laughs> yeah. And I have to pee. Go. Yeah. <laughs> well, go do that. That's important. Take care of your body. Thank you so much for sharing everything with me. I'm so excited. I'm so glad that I got to talk to you. Beautiful story. Well, thank you for reaching out. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for the show, everybody. Thank you again, Nefertiti, for speaking with me. Listeners, go and get her book. Okay, this episode went long, so I'm out of here. Hit me up at spermcast at gmail.com if you have any guest suggestions or comments or questions. Or if you're curious about fertility consultations and you kind of just wish you had someone to listen to you who understands what you're going through, I'm here for you. You can email me and I'll send you more info, spermcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the Patreon for extra content at patreon.com forward slash spermcast. Support the show with plain old dollars just by sending some money to molly-hockey on Venmo. Leave a voicemail or text me at 323-741-1818. Follow me on social media at spermcast and subscribe rate review and if you're super super sweet and special share share this episode with your friends share the show with your friends i love you all so much and i'll be back next week with my friend actor writer filmmaker and content creator gracie mercedes it's gonna be great bye-bye i'll love you he could be bald and bearded shorter or tall funny smart love basketball gay straight black white with an underbite, I just need sperm, sperm cast. An Erios production. Powered by ACAST. 